Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. This is the Tennyson Bagels podcast. Uh, Andre couldn't join us today, so today I'm just here with Vonch, and we are going to be talking all things Del Potro. Uh, Vonch, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Um, this is definitely a very intriguing episode. I'm really uh, looking forward to it. Uh, definitely a, a bit sad and emotional by the news, but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do the great one Martin Del Potro justice today. Yeah. And it won't be easy because he had quite a career. Um, but before we get into that, I guess, um, did you watch his match against Albonis and how are you feeling during it? Yeah, I did. I did manage to catch um, uh, quite a bit of it. Um, yeah, it was, it was a bit sad. Um, definitely to watch Del Potro look so physically compromised and not be able to move um, anywhere near the degree that we know he's capable of doing, especially running around his backhand to hit those rocket inside out and inside in forehands that obviously he's he's really known for i mm-hmm. mean uh obviously he's known for a lot more than just the the big forehand but that's definitely something you know he he managed to really impose himself even in matches where he was physically compromised in the past yeah. and it just seemed him just just seemed impossible to do um i was glad that he got to do the send-off in front of uh, his home crowd Mm-hmm. Even if it's at a small sort of 250, but at least it's with his home fans and definitely the people in the crowd uh, really knew his story and they sort of knew what he was going through the last three years. And um, yeah, on top of that, he was playing a, a pretty solid opponent who was not taking uh, any, anything for granted and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, just had a job to do and put him away. But it was sad at the end, definitely with the interview and everything and just him realizing that he's in so much pain that it's just... Yeah just not worth it to carry on yeah and and you really can't blame him like um when i was watching i noticed the same thing as you like even on balls that were kind of close to the middle on the ad side which you know a few years ago he would have run around and blasted forehands um he just didn't have the the spring or the speed or enough lack of pain to move around them and hit forehands and it was tough to watch for sure um but i think i thought it was so on brand for him that even though he was diminished and he knew he was diminished he came back anyway, because I think a lot of players would have just called it, but he loves tennis so much that he wanted to end his career on the court. Um, and I thought like that was typically impressive of him um, because he has pain tolerance, almost like no other tennis player. Um, and he has played some crazy matches in his career. Um, I think some of my favorites are the ones against the big four, I guess. I think my favorite might be the one he played against Murray at Davis cup in 2016, which clocked in at five hours and seven minutes. Um, what did you think of that match? Um, I assume you've seen the whole thing yeah. or seen highlights. Yeah, I definitely uh, remember seeing the scores when I was in school um, and in high school, just you know, trying to trying to see what's what's going on. Especially because um, 
obviously Murray was really in form at that time and he was yeah. going for, obviously he went on a big streak to finish 2016 and I was fully, uh, uh, you know, invested in it, especially after the Rio Olympics match, which was mm-hmm. four hours. And obviously in that tournament, he beat Djokovic and he beat Nadal. And yeah. it was a, such a fairy tale sort of second career, the third career really at that point. Right. Um, but yeah, the match against <laughs> Murray was absolutely nuts, especially just, I just have memories of Murray just chasing and running down these Raja forehands and overhead yeah. smashes uh, corner to corner. Um, you know, like you said, five hour and both of them just absolutely, I mean, it was just crazy. Like playing, like it was, they were in their first 10, 15 minutes of the match at five hours in. And mm-hmm. it was just every single point was um, super high quality, especially in the fifth set. And it was one, it was one of the highest quality matches definitely that he's, he's played. Um, yeah, for sure. Definitely up there. I remember the first time I watched the highlights, I saw that he went down two sets to one. And I was thinking, and this was way back when I didn't know all that much about tennis, but I knew that Murray was really good. And I had seen some clips of Del Potro where he kind of looks tired. And so I thought to myself, like, Murray is definitely winning this match because he's ahead and Del Potro is going to get tired. Like physically, he's not going to be able to come back. And then when I saw him win at the end and I saw five hours and seven minutes on the clock, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and there are a couple, and it made me realize like, okay, this guy is really special. Um, and there are a couple of points in that match that are just wild. Like the point he plays at three all break point to get the break in the fifth. Murray hits a huge serve, comes in and hits a volley on top of the net, but he goes to Del Potro's forehand. So on the dead run, Del Potro hits a passing shot winner down the line. And when he pumps his fist, he almost smirks a little bit, um, like kind of a knowing smile because that's his trademark. And it was a crazy shot. He's the only one who could have hit that shot at that insane pace. Uh, and he knew it, and that was pretty fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, the combination of racket head speed that he gets on the dead run, to be able to hit those forehands, you know, both cross-court and down the line yeah. from a running position at 110 plus miles per hour, like consistently, <laughs> I mean, it's just a joke. I still remember the the point that comes to my mind is him playing against Nadal in the fifth set of the, oh, yeah. the 2018 yeah. quarterfinal match, and this was when uh, Murray was sort of on the sidelines because yep. he was hip injury and he was calling the match, you know, just in the BBC booth commentary and he just starts laughing and just goes 107 miles per hour. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just cracking up and he just, he couldn't believe it when he's been seeing for five hours. And that one made Rafa smile as well. Um, I knew exactly what you were going to say. Yeah. I think one that sticks in my mind is, um, I don't know if you remember this one, but when he was playing Federer at the U S open in 2017, Federer was serving at five all 30 15 in the first set and he kind of pushes Del Potro out wide to the forehand and Del yeah. Potro hits a forehand down the line it's not kind of the one that ends up right in the corner um it was almost kind of central but it hit right near the baseline but it was so outrageously fast that Federer couldn't touch it and he um and it was so unexpected that he kind of thrashed his racket against the court when he was trying to reach it and it was all just very sudden and very violent and it was so much so that I worry that Federer had hurt himself like trying to reach the ball because it looks like so whiplashy because the forehand had been so fast. Um, right. And I was a Federer fan back then, and luckily he didn't hurt himself, but Del Potro won that match, um, which was really impressive. I mean, because people have asked Federer before, if you could play one match over in your career, which one would you play? And he said the 2009 US Open final against Del Potro. And yeah. so he kind of got a a chance in that 2017 quarterfinal, same court, same opponent. And even though he had a bit of a back thing, I think um, Del Potro beat him again. 
um, yeah. which was so impressive. It was so impressive, especially um, the way he, uh, you know, a common theme that I think with Del Potro is that, you know, obviously with the tribalism nowadays of the big three slash four fan base, yeah. um, you know, definitely they really, they, there's very few opponents that really, uh, if, the, if their um, favorite player loses to, that they're happy with but with yeah. Del Potro the common theme is like oh I'm a Federer fan I'm an Adal fan right, I'm a Djokovic right. fan but when Del Potro beat my guy you know because because of his uh the way his presence and how he sh- uh, I guess showered the earth with his uh, kindness yeah. <laughs> if you put it that way I mean and because of his rich legacy and because of all he's had to endure with his injuries and mm-hmm. I, I just felt like a lot of people were so invested in his results even to the point where they would just stay up till two or three a.m. Myself included, and watch a lot of his matches. Yeah, just knowing, you know, just knowing that something so pure was happening, and like he was gonna, you know, that every time he played one of the big, big guys, almost every time he was either gonna lose in a really tight fashion, or he was mm-hmm. gonna push them to the absolute brink, and he was gonna be, he's gonna, he was gonna play one of the matches of the year essentially, and that's yeah what he ended up doing for all three phases of his career, really. Yeah. And I think that kind of duality with his insane power with the hundred mile an hour forehands and the gentle giant five he has is so Mm -hmm. encompassed by those moments when, you know, he blasts one of these crazy forehands and his opponent who might ordinarily react by like getting pissed at their crazy bad luck or like cursing the gods or something. They just look over the net and smile. Um, And I feel like that's only with Del Potro because they yeah. know it's special um and and he's got a good sense of humor and he's a nice guy um and so he has a lot of nice moments like that mm-hmm. and yeah i think um i think with a lot of players we say in a different era they would have won so much more and i think with del potro that really applies because there have been multiple tournaments where he's beaten more than one member of the big four and um and then he's had to play a third one and he'll lose to them um like and it it's such crazy bad luck. I mean, injuries aside, like one of the ones that sticks in my mind is Indian Wells 2013. He beats Murray. Then he beats Djokovic. I think from a set down and 3-0 down in the third set. They love in the third, yeah. Djokovic does not lose matches like that, but he did to Del Potro. And then Del Potro, who must have been running on fumes at this point, gets Rafa in the final and goes up a set and a break. And then finally runs out of gas and loses from there. Um, but yeah. it's like... He beat Murray, beat Djokovic, and then almost beat Rafa. Can you imagine if he had beaten all three of them? Um, and then he almost did it again at the Rio Olympics because he um, he beat Djokovic. Then, even though that was an emotionally and physically draining match, probably, then wins a bunch more rounds, beats Nadal in an even more exhausting match, and then finally Murray has enough to beat him. Um, but like, it takes a lot to break this guy down when he's playing well. It really does. And the thing about his game is that you know, I feel like a lot of people talk about the forehand, a lot of people, yeah. and, you know, and we dazzle at that shot, but really his game is so complete, right? It like is, the way yeah. he is, uh, I think, you know, especially when he was coming up on one tour already in 2007, 2008, I mean, before the incredible 2009 season he had, mm-hmm. he sort of showed like he has a complete package for someone six foot six. I mean, uh, sort of, I think Murat Safin was kind of the first of that era with the, yeah. like, you know, big serve big uh, big ground strokes but can move really well and is also pretty fluid and covers the court well yeah and can return a bit as well uh, yeah and can return and just a little bit of everything and has some charisma and he, he sort of brought in brought that into the game now Safin wasn't consistent enough mm-hmm. to really uh, fulfill his potential in that way 
consistently. But when Del Potro came along, I remember even in like 2007, 2008, uh, if I go back on YouTube and I see some of his matches, I mean, Australian Open, he plays Fernando Gonzalez and he loses in five sets. And Gonzalez oh. goes on to thrash Nadal in the quarters. Right. He plays one of the most dominant semifinals against Haas and then yeah. loses in the final against Federer. And then at Roland Garros, he plays Nadal in the first round. And they have like one really close set. Mm-hmm. But he, had, he ends up losing. And it's it's sort of like, you know, if let's just say Alcaraz was supposed to play one of the one of the top players today, and you right. can sort of see the pieces, and you know he's not gonna win, yeah, you know, yeah. against the against the Djokovic or Medvedev or Nadal, but you know he's gonna show pieces of potential of how complete his game is here and there. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what he did, because then he went on and played Federer at Wimbledon, his best grand slam, and then he uh, and then he lost in the second round, and it was the same kind of a thing, like one really tight set, a really good showing, and then he plays Djokovic on hardcore at the U.S. Open in the third round there. So it's like, you know, he plays all all the players who ended up either winning the tournament or getting to the final. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking, okay, the potential is there; he can get to the top ten for sure. And then he goes on this incredible tear in 2008 uh, after Wimbledon, and he wins four tournaments in a row. And he he, it's sort of like remember when Casper Ruud won like three events last year, but yeah. he except this is like with better competition and across four two different surfaces. Mm-hmm. And he did that leading into the whole leading into the U S open. And he beat Roddick along the way. He beat fish. He beat some other, you know, good solid top eight, top 10 players. And then he went on in the U S open and then actually played a really good match against Murray in right, the quarters. quarterfinals. Yeah. And I think that was a really tight four set loss in four hours. Um, and then, yeah, and then he ended up finishing the year on the top 10. And then, yeah, and, the and way we all know what happened in 2009. Um, yeah, and the, the way he rebounded against Federer in 2009, and the way he sort of learned with each match was just amazing to watch. Th- that's one of my favorite arcs from getting demolished at the Australian Open. He won three games in three sets, mm-hmm. and then not only beat him at the US Open, but beat him in their next match after that. I mean, it was, well. it was humiliating uh, the way he yeah. lost that match, because, I mean, there was a point in that match where Federer was just showing off a bit and just like you know he was using his head and just bopping the ball across the net <laughs> at one point because he was like six three six like i'm definitely not losing here yeah i mean he was probably bored by the end um yeah. but yeah i mean what you mentioned about del potro's game being so complete yesterday i was watching highlights of him beating djokovic at the olympics in rio and i just couldn't believe it because like you said the forehand is amazing but he, the patience he was showing on the backhand as well like right. you know um people say he only slices it but he was willing to endlessly slice until he got a look at a forehand. Like I was watching this match and it was like, it doesn't really look like Djokovic can do anything. Cause not only did exactly. Del Potro have the biggest weapon on the court, he was defending, like he was getting to stuff. Um, he was like reading it when Djokovic tried to go to his forehand. Um, Djokovic didn't have a single break point in that match. It was crazy. Um, like it was one of the highest levels I've seen someone play at um i mean yeah. horrible luck for Djokovic to get him in the first round and then have to p- play that kind of um a god mode performance but if you haven't seen those highlights there's a 15 minute video it's amazing he um and it gets good very quickly he hits one of those on the run cross-court forehand bomb winners on the third point of the match um mm-hmm. yeah like he's he's just hitting the absolute crap out of the ball from the very first game I think um, in the second tiebreak, it's two tiebreaks, Del Potro wins both. Uh, Djokovic tries to approach to the forehand twice, and twice he gets passed down the line. And then I think Del Potro hits like a massive forehand. It's not not quite a winner, but Djokovic can't get it back. And uh, that sets him up to go up like 5-0. And the commentator just goes like, can't beat that forehand, not tonight. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, like that that shot could dominate entire matches. Um, could, like yeah. I, I wrote... 
a couple of days ago, like maybe the purest form of firepower tennis has ever seen in a single shot. Yeah, for sure. Like one of the biggest single shots I've ever seen, like on, mm-hmm. a, on a tennis court. And the way you mentioned, like sort of how he kept his backhand steady. Um, the one thing is like after his surgeries, he definitely used a combination of just the slice, but also like a shovel kind of a backhand. Yeah. So it would help set up these massive forehands and then he could, he still had the legs underneath him. So he could still defend pretty well mm-hmm. and he could, he could set himself up so that he's using like sort of, he has a really good tennis IQ because yeah. even when he had sort of a short ball, he would come in off a really good slice with it, or he could, he could just use really good footwork and just run around his backhand corner mm-hmm. and just come up with just really good winning plays that worked over and over again. And just the regularity with, with that, with which that forehand work. I mean, yeah. I feel like if I were to try that on a tennis court or somebody else really like actually work on that in their game, it's so hard to do do that with such consistency and like yeah. regularity, but it was such a, almost such a bankable weapon for him that it's, it, it could work against any kind of, a, any kind of trajectory of the, of the ball. Like the high bounce didn't mm-hmm. bother him. The low bounce didn't really bother him. Like, it's not like, you know, he struggled with those shots. So it was, it was really like really evident of just how he retooled his game. Yeah. It was obviously, he was just robbed of the chance many, many times to build upon his success and he just had to restart his career. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's so unfortunate because that's when you wonder like oh what could have been what should have been, but the way he was able to come back every single time in the top five, I guess the first time we could talk about is in two thousand nine right after he wins the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. you know he then backs up that win over Federer and then goes to the World Tour finals, yeah and then he beats um, he beats Federer again in the round robin, and then he gets to the final he loses in the loses in the final but you're thinking okay he has a real chance now yeah and that was like world number one. Yeah, and that was peak Debbie Denko as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he really looks like the next guy. I think. I mean, he did. at the end of two thousand nine, he would have been better situated than Djokovic. Really, I mean, at, at that point, that. people probably would have been rating him higher than Djokovic, which is yeah. crazy to think about. Um, there were like three guys at that point who were like could take on Federer and Nadal. It was Djokovic, yeah. Murray, and Del Potro. Right, like those were the next three. Yeah, and and his two thousand ten just got completely wiped out right yeah just just completely wiped out by it and this time i think it was the, on his right hand actually the surgery okay. so he had right wrist surgery and that kept him out for the entirety of 2010 mm-hmm. i think he played australian open and he ended up losing a five cent match against chilich which is one of the rare losses he has against chilich because right. he sort of they grew up playing each other they're like the same age they're five days apart mm-hmm. and they kind of have similar sort of trajectory career-wise as well which is interesting yeah. Um, but he got the better of that matchup and he ended up losing that one in five. And uh, yeah, then he was out for the rest of the year, like nothing mm-hmm. the rest of the year. And then he played, I think when he came back, he was ranked 485 in the world in 2011, oh, which is just crazy. And, you know, oh. yeah, at, I, least, at least at this point, he could still hit his backhand, like right. with somewhat regularity. It wasn't like the version that we saw in 2016. But yeah, I, I hate that he didn't have a proper chance to defend his US Open. Um, yeah, because I feel like he it would have been fun to watch him do that. Um, like I think it would have been really fun to watch him mix it up with the big three, like in the semifinals, okay. maybe. Um, because I think it was Djokovic Nadal or Djokovic Federer, and I think Nadal played Yuzny or something. Um, it would have yeah. been so cool to see Del Potro there instead. Um, right. but and yeah, I mean, the 2009 US Open, I believe that's the only major in the open era, right? Where the big three have made to the semis, and none, and of, them none, won. Of, none of them end up winning, so that's yeah. pretty insane. And the way he I mean, I know Nadal was obviously struggling with a bit of an abdominal tear. 
Right. Um, but 6'2", 6'2", 6'2". Like, that's that's right. massive. That is him. That is utterly annihilation. That's, like, yeah. the fewest number of games in Dallas ever lost. I mean, in a major, and he's played 61, 63 of them in his career. Right. So like, and, and the way he stole that final from Federer, because yeah. he should not have won that match. Federer had break points to go up. 6-3-4-1, double break in the second. Um, right. And he, serve for the second set as well. Yeah, had 30 love at 5-4. And then he was up two sets to one. He had break points in the fourth set. And Del Potro oh, eventually had to play a tie break for his life. Um, and he won all of it. Um, like some of the forehands he had in that match as well were unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I think I said this on Murray Musings, but I feel like Del Potro was the only one who Federer has tried to like trade forehands with and it doesn't work out. Um, it doesn't and, work, yeah. Like the way I always think of it is like Federer is trying to prove that he is a better forehand. Um, <laughs> And it's like, why would you give him the chance to hit those forehands? Because like when he goes to Del Potro's forehand, like, I mean, I could probably count a dozen times just from memory that Del Potro has like blasted one of those winners past him. Um, and Federer it might keeps be a little to... bit of a little bit of an ego thing, sort of like. Oh yeah, um, know, and, and definitely maybe he feels like if I hit it really well, you know, right. and I can get him super stretched out, then I can go to his weaker wing. But yeah. it's just impossible unless you hit. Like unless because he's always running in that direction and he's always anticipating yeah. it, and he you know he's going to get there. Yeah. And it's, it's, if it's not, if it's just not like a line licking shot, even then, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just so risky. And I, right. I cringed every time Federer did it. Yeah, and and even even because... if it works, sometimes like your margin for error is so small because if you mess it up, like the point is over. Um, like you yeah. you don't just return those those on the run bombs that he hits. And yeah, I um the way I always think of it is that Federer is trying to say basically with his shots i have the better forehand um and when i think of it i'm like you know he probably does but why would you give del potro the chance to hit forehands like just go to that backhand um but at the same time i think it's i mean obviously the backhand is the side to hit to but even when del potro was just slicing it it's not like you hit to that side and you immediately get an error um which makes things really tough because and I think I noticed this in the Olympics match against Djokovic and Rio. Djokovic would like lose patience a little bit um, because you go to the backhand again and again, and you get the exact same ball and it's not particularly attackable. So it feels like you need to force the action. Yeah. And Del Potro is content to just wait and get a forehand. It's like you, you pressing is what he wants. Um, so it's, he seems like a very tough, like frustrating opponent to play in a position like that. And um, I think it was a shame as well that his 2018 comeback kind of got abbreviated the next year because at the U.S. Open, he was hitting like backhands down the line winners. I mean, not all the time, but he was like hitting winners off his backhand. And when he's doing that, there's no place to go. I mean, obviously still preferable to go to the backhand, but he could just be a nightmare from anywhere. Um, The best thing you can really do with that situation is just try to use variety and keep mixing it up while going to his backhand. Like give him Mm -hmm. one really short give him one that's a little bit more pacey and has more height over it. Yeah. But it's just so difficult because it's not like he's, I mean, he's not the most comfortable at net, but he's so good at transitioning still yeah. because he can, he can read that play and he's pretty quick and he has good reach, good feel and touch at the net. I mean, even, yeah. I mean, even yesterday against still bonus, um, there was that one point where he actually chased down a drop shot and he somehow mm-hmm. managed to put away and volley in the open court and everybody yeah. was just going Losing crazy. Their minds, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think drop shotting him is a good play, no matter how he is physically. Um, just like yeah. bring him to the net on your terms. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, I mean, so he's just so tough. And like, and against Federer, when you're attacking his backhand, the play is kind of like, you don't want to go there on every shot. Like you want to give him like one random forehand to mix it up and then go back to the backhand. So you don't let him get in the backhand rhythm. But with Del Potro, if you try to mix it up once, he can kill you on that one shot. Um, so you really have yeah. to stay so tactically disciplined and keep him on that side. And it's really tough to do. And he just seems to get better and better. He sort of has that Wawrinka-like quality as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, he raises the stakes when he plays the big three in the longer the matches to go. It's not like he physically fades away. He right. actually tends to get stronger quite sometimes. That's why we see him come back from two sets to one down, like against Murray and against Federer. He's able mm-hmm. to stay with these guys and manage his energy levels. And he's actually one of the fewer guys who, you know, tends to sometimes look tired in between points or, you know, in between sets. And you kind of think, okay, you know, I've sort of had, I sort of had him. The match that comes to my mind is team oh, yeah. in 2017. <laughs> and he was, I mean, he's sick. He's like battling flu and he's right. like two sets down and team is dominating him. And you're thinking, okay, yeah, you know, it was, it would have been nice to see Federer Del Potro again, but you know, Dominic, uh-huh. he's coming up, he's a good player, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll see team versus Federer. And then right. he goes to the third set and you're thinking, okay, he looks completely out of it. You know, okay, he's a good fighter. He'll probably fight. He may sneak out a set, yeah. but the way he comes back from two sets to love down. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> that set point in the fourth set is one of my favorite things um, because I mean, he's up six one in the tiebreak, so he's going to win anyway, but um, you know, team hits a first serve. Del Potro returns down the middle. Um, team, like, it's not a really attackable ball, but team, like, crushes a forehand cross court and charges the net. And then Del Potro just swats the ball past him like it's nothing. Uh, and the crowd goes nuts immediately. And he kind of does his fist pump and then the, and then the come on where he yells to the crowd. Oh my God. That was an electric moment. Yeah. I, I still have just images of that come on face where he's just, oh, yeah. like his mouth is just wide open. And yeah. And I, I always remember that because his mouth is always open wide, but like he kind of has a small mouth. So it's not, yeah. it's like the opposite of the Murray thing where his jaw is just on the floor. But yeah, that image is like seared into my mind as well. It's more length than width. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, another one of my favorite matches of his is, um, the 2013 Wimbledon semi with Djokovic, um, which he was kind of legitimately close to winning. He had a break point in the fifth set, but you, you rarely see Djokovic pushed that hard. Um, He kind of almost pulled um, a Novak by um, Mm -hmm. saving those match points in the fourth set. One of them after this epic, epic rally uh, where Djokovic had to do a ton of Spider-Man stuff and Del Potro maintains like accurate offense anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that was incredible. That match was really long as well. That that took out Djokovic's legs for the final. It did. He owes. Uh, he owes. Uh, Murray's definitely owes Del Potro. Yeah. Uh, you know, definitely gives owes Del Potro a lot of credit for yeah you know, making Djokovic tired. But the thing it's a is good thing we're saying this now I mean, and not on the Murray Musings podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Although you know the the, the crazy thing about. Del Potro in some of these matches as well as he has that ability to chase down a lot of balls. And when he does, he does that thing where he goes over on the opposite side of the net or he'll go over like to the, or he'll just continue running mm-hmm. and he'll continue running into the crowd or yep. he'll, he'll just go over on the other side. Like I remember in the Djokovic match, he like crossed, crossed uh, the net and went over and then just like him and Djokovic just like shared a high five. I remember yeah. another match against Federer in Paris masters 2013 um, it was before the Djokovic Federer match, mm-hmm. and uh, like he chases down this this drop shot, and he gets there, but you know it's just 
like he, he somehow manages to get there, which is impressive. And then Federer just sort of puts it away yeah. uh, for, for the next, for the next ball. But then he just runs over the net uh-huh. and then he just high fives Federer and they should, they have a moment together. And then he yeah. just goes back on his side. It's just, it's like one of those moments that are just so endearing to the crowds. And you can just see like, you know, that even though the crowd is mostly for Federer, you know, they're uh-huh. going to, they're going to definitely appreciate Del Potro yeah. if he comes out on top. Yeah. That's just, I feel like Del Potro has been part of a lot of funny moments like that. I think yeah. there have been two times against Federer where he kind of gets pushed out wide and has to hit a lob and Federer is waiting at net, but it's like a short lob and it clips the net tape and dies. Um, oh, and, yeah. and once Federer actually missed the put away when that happened, yeah. I think it was at like 30 all in the first game of a match. Uh, and it was, it was hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean, Everyone seems to like him. Also, what I, I love think, is that Federer only... knew the only option was really at some points was to just drop shot him and bring yeah. him forward. And Del Potro knew that too. So he would get there. And then there was this one point, I think, at the ATP finals in 2012, mm-hmm. where he just like pretended to hit a ball at Federer because he just knew <laughs> like, dude, you're just, you're killing me with these drop shots. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but he was one of those opponents who like made you play a specific way. Um, he did, yeah. You had to change your game to beat him because your yeah. ordinary game was was not going to be good enough. Like, yeah, just, he's just too patient and he's too good of a fighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think his movement during his prime is also underrated. He was one of the first big guys who could actually cover the court. Yeah, and pairing that with a weapon as devastating as that forehand, it's it just boggles my mind that he only got one major. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. John Wertheim did a clip on Tennis Channel where I think he said he had to miss like 10 or 11 majors in a row. Um, Like that is brutal. I mean, if he's, if he merely has the injury lock of like an average player, I definitely see him winning another US Open, probably a Wimbledon, and then possibly an Australian Open as well. And I feel like that's being pretty conservative. Yeah, for sure. For me, definitely, you know, in the Murray Wawrinka tier and like, you know, three to six majors is where I would probably put it at if I were to guess, because definitely, I mean, he made it back to another major final and that's crazy. And he got to number three in the world. Mm -hmm. Just, there were so many chances that, I mean, Australia was really unfortunate for him. I feel like because a lot of the times he sustained an injury and then it it sort of the off season wasn't enough to really get it right. You know, back to a hundred percent. And he was just for whatever reason, he suffered some, so that was probably one of his worst majors just in terms of like his losses and his luck and just, but both, both 20, 2009 and 2012, he managed to get better against Federer and mm-hmm. Federer sort of beat him really badly in both times. But throughout the season, Del Potro just kept pushing and pushing. And then we had a great rivalry yeah. between those two. And it was like, because I remember in 2012, they kept playing over and over. And this is sort of when Del Potro was already back in the top 10. Like I think he finished 2011, number 11. And then he finished 2012, like back in the top seven. But during this period, like he played Federer four tournaments, like straight in a row. Like he played him in Australia. Then he played him in Rotterdam. He played him in Dubai. He played him in Indian Wells. And none of those were particularly awesome matches because I mean, I think Federer definitely found the formula there for like four, four times straight where he could really, he really had the mental edge at that point. But then, then they play this awesome match in Paris and he's two sets to love up. Um, right. Del Potro is. And he's sort of struggling with a bit of a knee, knee problem. And, you know, but still he may, he comes back and he sort of makes Federer work in the fifth mm-hmm. and Federer gets it done. I remember that match was going on simultaneously on one of the outside courts while Djokovic was playing against Sanga. Oh yeah. Was, I remember that. Match. The, it was like both the matches were going on at the same time. And it was, uh-huh. 
it was that, but really I remember it was their um, Olympics match on grass. Yeah. Which was 1917 in the third set, I believe the longest ever Olympic match played. And I think Del Potro, like Federer wins the first, Del Potro wins the first set 6-3 and then. Yeah. And Federer then the second has, was a 7-5 tiebreak. Right. And then I think Del Potro had a couple of chances to break and he would have served for the match. That's right. Federer yeah. ends up serving well and he gets out of the game and then. They have this amazingly long third set. What impresses me is that um, one, he broke Federer one time and he got it back on serve. Yeah. And then he, you know, there was this look of relief on Federer's face when he ended up winning that match. Oh yeah. Like just the, the physical toll that it took on him then. Yeah. To go I, and play Murray again in the Olympics. Right. I, I was gonna say again, it took out the semifinalists. Like, but you know what Murray. the amazing thing about it is that the next day. Djokovic and Del Potro played. And yeah. Del Potro wasn't as physically compromised as I mean, I know Federer was 30 and you know, there's yeah. all of those. Uh, you know, he definitely has an advantage there, but like he he beat Djokovic in the bronze right. medal match. Like he 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 took him out and it was straight sets, like five yeah. and four. It wasn't even that it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I mean his I his physical durability when he was healthy. Is definitely underrated. He could he could mix it up with those guys. Um, I mean, another match that just boggles my mind was um the Indian Wells final in 2018. Yeah, um, yeah, that's and and I didn't watch this when it happened. I was actually taking a tennis lesson, but I was rooting for Federer, and I pulled my phone out of my bag at one point. I saw Federer was serving for it in the third set. It was five four, and I was like, okay. Um, you know, he's got it. Like it was, it got hairy, like in the second set tiebreak, but like, he's going to win. And then the lesson ends and I check my phone. I'm like, he's lost in a tiebreak seven, two. Like what, what happened here? Um, and yeah. the answer is that Del Potro happened. He, um, he played a great man. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He, he played phenomenally well and he was the better player really for the first two sets yeah. and he probably should have put it away in straights. I remember he had a forehand and he hit it in the net and yeah. that was in the tie break. And that was such a high tense competitive match. It was like, you know, both players really wanted it badly. Yeah. Because yeah. Then, I mean, I remember Federer had a lot of frustrated reactions during that match. Yeah. When I watched yeah, it, it was, on replay um, and Federer was number one at this point. Um, this was, was the last yeah. time he's been number one. Um, and the first set, was really straightforward. Like Del Potro, I think broke to love and then didn't face mm-hmm. a break point. And when it and when I watched it on replay, the commentator said, you know, it's almost as if Del Potro is the world number one here. And <laughs> being a Federer fan at the time, I took offense to that and got annoyed. <laughs> um but he was right. Like it um 
Del Potro can can play number ones like that and just beat them. Yeah. I mean, another one is um, he played Nadal in Shanghai in 2013, which was one of Nadal's best ever purple patches of form on hard courts, um, and just demolished him. It was like six two, six four. Um, never gave him a chance. I don't know if he faced a break point there either. Um, yeah, I mean, the things he could do when he was on was just spectacular. Just spectacular. And the, the Indian Wells final, I mean, yeah, like you're right. And I've never seen Federer that frustrated. I mean, the only other time I saw him that frustrated was against Del Potro in 2009. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell Mavi me the rules. <laughs> and it's like only Del Potro could do these things to his opponent. Like, yeah. You remember in the Shanghai Masters final? When he played uh, after he beat Nadal, he played Djokovic, and Djokovic that like, was a really good match. Scoreboard, yeah. and he's just so angry. Like, how? Oh, yeah, is it, it was after this break point um, that Djokovic had to go up four two in the third, and Del Potro kind of pins him on the ad side with inside out forehands, and then rips yeah. it inside in, and Djokovic like dead run swings his racket, still can't get there, um, and, and it was yeah. a winner. And then, he, like you said, he just kicks the clock. Um, <laughs> Djokovic was. Um, he got into it with the crowd in that match as well. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it took everything he had to get over the line. Yeah. There's also that one drunk forehand game. That oh my God, that was hilarious. Set, which, that's yeah. that's all-time comedy. <laughs> I have to go back and watch that. It's been a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's nice that Tennis TV has been putting out these Del Potro compilations. Um, I've been watching yeah, a lot of them. Really and the thing is, the way he played that uh, tiebreak, it was so fitting because... I mean, he had been in Masters finals before, and he just not, and he just lost them in a really tight fashion. I remember the first one he played against Murray in the Rogers Cup. Mm. Um, they had like a couple of tie breaks. Um, Del Potro won the first one, Murray won the second, and then physically Del Potro was a bit gone in the third, uh-huh. and he ended up losing that. And then there was the seven six and third to Djokovic in Shanghai, right? Which didn't go his way, and then he finally gets one that goes his way, and he saves three matches three championship points and the first one was with a spectacular forehand winner that Federer just couldn't yeah. do anything about. I mean that was that was a perfectly constructed point like he hit I think an inside and backhand return and then just kind of slowly opened up the court with his forehand um like Federer didn't do anything wrong like you said mm-hmm. um but afterwards, just took it from him he really put doubt in Federer's mind and yeah. you know this was a time when Federer really didn't have that much doubt against players that he was playing facing because he won three of the last four majors he had won 71 of the of his last 76 matches getting mm. into the I mean this was his best career start ever to a season yeah like he had he like you said he'd just been world number one and he'd done it he'd become the oldest man to become world number one he did it in Rotterdam and he was just carrying this winning streak and he, although he wasn't particularly playing his very best that weekend mm-hmm. um, because especially he had to come back in the semis against Chorich and yeah I, I remember being really frustrated team. during that match because he was not playing well and just had to make yeah. it work just this one ugly and got it done somehow but then but then just the you could just see the doubt on his face and just that told that that loss sort of took on Federer because yeah, he, I mean it, wasn't it the killed his season here. really um yeah. that was kind of the end of his second prime almost um I think even in the middle of that match you could see it like he after that first match point he got really trigger happy with drop shots I think tried mm-hmm. them on the second and third match points missed one of them and the other one was bad and Del Potro yeah. had a winner. And then on the break point, he did the committed the cardinal sin against Djokovic and hit like this, this inside in forehand that was kind of just down the middle. And I think everyone yeah. knew what was happening. And Del Potro just wound up and bashed it cross court into the corner and it was a winner. Um and yeah. after that, Del Potro like barely lost a point. Like he he must yeah. have won like 
16 of the last 24 points or something. It was crazy. Like and then I remember in the five hole game, Federer had this like, he, 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 he had this like, <laughs> I, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, on top of the net, and he was just, and he just, sent it in the direction where Del Potro was running and yeah I mean and then he just like kind of threw his arms out he was so mad because he that was the one time he actually set up a point properly and like went to the forehand with a ball Del Potro couldn't attack and like he'd done all this work to get this lollipop (laughs) on top of the net and Del Potro was waiting on the outside um like past the alley and he just flicked it right to him (laughs) but that's what he could that's what Del Potro could do you know he could yeah plant these seeds of doubt in your mind and just make you come up with something different that, you know, you have to set up a point in a way that's, you know, not something Federer, even Federer as many options as he has, is not accustomed yeah. to. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Del Potro must be one of the hardest guys to hit a put away against because right. in your head, it's like, okay, well, he knows I'm not going to go to his forehand. So he's going to be camped out on that backhand side. Yeah. So should I try to, so if I go to the backhand, I have to hit it close to the line, but he's going to be expecting that. But if I hit it to the forehand, then he has the chance to hit that bomb on the run. And so it's kind of like you have all these options in your head and all of them can go wrong because he can have to do that. You have to calculate that in seconds. Like, yeah, you you just don't have the time to react whatsoever. It's like all of them, like you're saying, are just they feel like bad options. Exactly. And I think I don't know if there's anyone who hasn't fallen into that trap where where they think like, I'll go to the forehand and I'll trick him. But he's just waiting for you to do that. And then he just rips it past you. I mean, And it's happened on big points too. Like I think um, in the 2009 U.S. Open final, Federer gets broken at 1-0 in the fifth um, because he approaches to Del Potro's forehand and he gets passed, mm-hmm. and um, never, never was in the match again after that. And yeah, I mean, Del Potro's just got a lot of ways to beat you. He does, yeah. And then obviously, it was what was unfortunate is again, you know, he has that spectacular 2013 and then we go into 2014-15 and those seasons are gone i mean it's just like three straight full seasons of his prime robbed because of injuries and he had three wrist surgeries this time and when he comes back in 2016 he's ranked 1045 and he has to start all over again and he missed the australian open already so you know that's Mm -hmm. like 10 majors gone just yeah it's it's brutal and i feel like 2014 especially I feel like he could have done something that season because I feel like the big three were maybe not quite at their best that year. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Nadal was out for a while on the second half of the season. I mean, the first major of the year went to Pavrenka. Um, I mean, French Open Nadal, not really at his best either. Um, and I think Wimbledon might have been tough, but the US Open, um, I mean, yeah. I I could see him winning that. Um, yeah, I mean, of, if you have Nishikori and Chilich in the final, yeah. you're you're at home rehabbing and your name is Juan Martin Del Potro. Oh you're probably I, just, I, I can't imagine because it, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that Nishikori or Chilich didn't deserve it because they right. played amazing. But at the same time, it's like, I feel like that major had Del Potro's name on it. Like that sure. finally the big three were like, okay, like they, you know, Nadal wasn't there and the other two, kind of had weird uncharacteristic lapses so much so that it's almost like it's the only time this is going to happen and he wasn't there to capitalize which is such a bummer yeah it really is and you know like you said like Nadal was yeah Nadal was injured for half the year he didn't play after Wimbledon really and then Murray was still coming back from his back surgery right Federer was coming back with a new racket and you know new coach and 
Djokovic still only won one major. So you feel like there were yeah. there was chances that year for sure. For sure. And, yeah. And like at that US Open, um, I feel like if he had gotten Djokovic in the semi, I feel like if Nishikori could have beaten him, Del Potro definitely could have. Um yeah, I think Federer might have been a little bit tougher, but I like he was not at his best that tournament either. Um like mm-hmm. at, at the least it would have been a close match. Yeah, for sure. But the most impressive thing is that the way he sort of just accepted defeats early in 2016, just knowing that, you know, this is going to take time. This is going to be yeah. a big process and I'm going to have to play more tournaments than I ever had. I'm going to have to, you know, accept that, you know, I might just completely have to retool my game and just ex- go mostly exclusively with the slice and the shovel backhand mm-hmm. very rarely if, if I really could. And the way he was able to get so many big wins yeah. by retooling his game and just playing a completely different style, but still setting up that massive forehand. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing to watch because, I mean, he did have some tough losses early on. I remember he came back and he lost to Sam Quarry and Delray Beach, but there was some hope because at least he was getting some momentum and getting yeah. things going. And, you know, then he he goes on. And I remember at that time, Dominic team was really coming up on the clay and he was starting to go towards the top 10 and he made the Roland Garros semis and he ends up beating team in madrid that year Mm -hmm. and i remember at that time being like pretty impressed i'm like okay this this is he has a chance he can get back into the top 10 again like this is happening Mm -hmm. and and when he and then obviously then he goes to wimbledon and he beats stan Wawrinka. and okay it's wimbledon it's not stan Wawrinka's Uh best slam but still he had to come back from a set down still he was the underdog yeah it was um unexpected in a way and he managed to do it and then he goes to the Olympics and I was worried after the Djokovic match that we might have sort of a letdown and, you know, maybe he could lose to some decent player earlier and we might not get that anticipated Nadal match. Right. But he ended up proving me wrong and he ended up getting there and he ended up beating Rafa. And From the way a set he did down as well. In the third set tie break and then he fell on his back and, you know, the, the scenes, because I also remember this was in Rio and because of political reasons like Rio and uh, like Brazil and Argentina, you know, aren't the greatest of friends, but the way the uh, crowd like embraced Del Potro, Mm -hmm. they just let, they just let all of that slide. And it was, yeah, like another amazing match against Rafa from a set down and then another amazing final against Murray. And then he gets to the quarters of the U S open as well. Right. Yeah. Lost to Stan, I think um, in a relatively tight match. Yeah, relatively or, tight. And then there's that one moment where he, where the crowd is spurring him on and he's in yeah. tears before he's about to serve. And it was just like, I mean, just the perfect place. If it wasn't for a 250 uh, in his hometown, I feel like the perfect place to to have the send-off would have been in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Because, yeah. you know, that was that really felt like his home away from home in a way. For right? sure. I, I hope they name like a section of seats after him or something um, oh, at yeah. some point there. Like, um yeah, that that crowd really adopted him. It was it was very nice. I think that 2009 US Open final is one of the few times Federer hasn't had near total crowd support there. Um mm-hmm. like a a big clump of the people there got behind him. I mean there was one For sure. one point I think 3-2 in the fourth set when he ran down this forehand and kind of poked it down the line for a winner and then just high-fived a bunch of people in the crowd. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that and that it's match. Crazy. I I need to go back and watch highlights. Um so that was incredible what he did. Yeah. I mean, and then the, I guess the Davis Cup triumph really is like one of his big highlights too, because mm. 
obviously the match against Murray, but then I remember in the final, and this is late in the season. Yeah, against Chilich. Against Chilich, he's two sets to lockdown, and he comes back and beats, and that was his first ever comeback from two sets to lockdown. I mean, as great of a fighter as he is, mm. he just hadn't had that opportunity to showcase it as many times. Yeah. And he did it for his country in a really important match with Argentina leading. And just the way he did it from two sets to lockdown, because Chilich was at that time really a f- top force. I mean, he was in the top six, and Del Potro was just inside the top 40, mm-hmm. like starting to get his way back. And what's crazy is that all the memories that he had in Rio and the run that he made there, he got no ranking points for it. Right. <laughs> just like Andy Murray didn't get any ranking points for it and still had to, and they were both trying to chase and get back to the top. And for Del Potro to come back and win that match and seal the Davis Cup for Argentina was a big result like over the next two years, I think. Yeah, yeah he's he's played some really fun Davis Cup matches. Like 2011, I mean, he lost both of these, but he played really good matches against uh, Ferrer and Nadal. Um, mm-hmm. The one against Ferrer went five sets. The one against Nadal was four, but he, he breadsticks Nadal on clay in the first <laughs> set. Um, and Nadal had to do some crazy things to beat him at the end. Um, I think even on clay, which kind of turned out to be Del Potro's worst surface, he's done some amazing things. And other fun matches, that one against Del Potro in Rome 2019, um, or the one against oh, Djokovic, yes. sorry, um, where he that had That was maybe points. the most surprising of the matches that he's played against all of them in a way, because obviously he he's just come back from injury and i'm thinking there's no way this is going to be competitive against Djokovic right. because you know he doesn't have the reps and he doesn't have the matches and i was like okay he looks okay in this tournament i mean beat mm-hmm. gofan but gofan and Djokovic entirely different league yeah. and so you're thinking okay you know hopefully it'll be a nice close two setter uh-huh. and then he goes and he wins the first set yeah. and then he has a match point in the second set he, he had two i think um yeah two match points. first one missed right. a forehand second one second one drop shot winner yeah, yeah. So and and then obviously I remember that one point at three all where he displayed this impeccable touch and hits this insane like like he, Djokovic hits one of his sliding cross court backhands and, yeah, and Del Potro's right there right there then it hits a pickup drop volley winner and yeah got a high, go five high five for that each one. other yeah. it's just, yeah um, I, and it took could, a lot out of Djokovic to win to then win that match and then beat another Argentine the next day and right. at night uh, second match on and then go and play Rafa like it it really. Yeah, Again. he was he was not fully <laughs> fit in that final. Um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't watch that match against Djokovic because I think it was I think it was the night of my junior prom or something. Um, but I was following right. the live score, and I saw Del Potro was up a break, and I was like, "Oh, cool." And then I saw he kept facing these break points, and I was thinking it's a matter of time before Djokovic comes back and wins this set. But Del Potro saved them all. I think I think he saved like seven of seven break points in the first set or something like that. And yeah, I was, um, I mean, people around me were talking. I was just like fixated on this live score because I was like, wow, this is really exciting. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was disappointed that he didn't win. But yeah, it was another example of him um, just playing really, really good tennis. So um, so the message here is that uh, Del Potro is, uh, is a big presence that even at your junior prom, you got to, you know, make an oh, exception man, that- to I'll tell you, following that live score was the most interesting part of that night. Um, but I guess, I guess, yeah. Um, so I, what is Del Potro's legacy for you? Oh, uh, such a deep question. I mean, the thing is, 
No, I mean, his legacy to me will always be bigger than his forehand, just because to me, he's like the Tower of Tandil, the gentle giant that's like yeah. showered the earth with his grace and kindness. And, you know, his legacy definitely goes beyond the 115 mile per hour forehand winners that, that he hit. It was just the, the way he commanded respect of those yeah. around him and his, uh, because it's one thing to have respect and uh, have the fans adore you and have that going for you with, in terms of public persona and popularity. But mm-hmm. the fact that he has that much respect with his peers um, and you could, you know, I've definitely, I've, I think I was on a space with um, Courtney Nguyen hosting it last uh-huh. week. And I've just tuned in for about 10, 15 minutes. Cause I was like, Oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. And they were talking about Del Potro and his, and his legacy. And I think uh, Courtney Nguyen, who used to work for the ATP, like in the early 2010s, like he had this aura about him in a way that when he used to walk in the locker room, a lot of the players would just stop what they're doing and just look and, you know, just either have a really nice moment with him that they'll remember forever, or they'll, you know, just a really cool practice session or a really, really nice photo, or just, you know, share a particular moment with them. And he was such a mentor for younger kids uh, and younger um, tennis players, some of whom still look up to him. Um, Like I think Taylor Fritz, he gave a really good quote yesterday in Dallas um, saying that he really like embodied his game after him and, genuinely like rooted for him when he played against the big three and yeah you know he he just sort of had that impact that legacy beyond tennis and i think few players are able to leave a mark beyond their just the results on the court mm-hmm. uh, unless your name is you know serena or one of the big four like it's just really hard to do because tennis is such a star-driven sport and you need yeah. personalities and del potro had that duality of the just the stark contrast between what he was like on the court and what he was like and he had so many great moments of sportsmanship as well where he would just award points to his opponent or he would um he he wore his heart on his sleeve and i think that for me is a really big legacy because i think actually shrihari had a really good tweet yeah i I was just thinking about which really embodied that that i think men they tend to it's this sort of a perception that we shield ourselves and we don't like show that emotion by crying and we sort of hold back the tears and in a way he was just unapologetically himself and he let those tears flow and he, and he, you know, and it brought other people to tears as well. Like yeah. there were so many people who watched his retirement um, against still bonus and they were genuinely moved to tears by it and just couldn't really cope mm-hmm. because he was such a big fixture for the 2010s and definitely one of the biggest what ifs, what could have been um, ever in tennis history. Like not just, not just the last 10 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What I, about I, you? I, I don't have too much to add to that. Yeah, I think um, think he had a, a massive impact. Francis Tiafo posted a really nice tribute mm-hmm. on Instagram as well. A really um, good one, yeah. Yeah, like you said, I think everyone loved him. And I think as, as far as on-court stuff goes, I think not only did he show that, like, you can you can beat the big guys. Like, mm-hmm. um, like you, can, you can give yourself chances. He's also just such a great model for perseverance. I mean, yeah. the amount of injuries that he had to endure is crazy. The fact that he kept coming back is crazy. Um, I think it's a great example of how love for what you're doing can overcome a lot of things. Yeah. Like he, right up until the end, he um, said how much he loves tennis and got, got emotional about that. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's just, like you said, he, he's like, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Yeah, and sure. I, yeah, I mean, I think he's a great role model in so many ways. 
Yeah, I, I really don't have much to add to that. You, you covered a lot. I think, um, and yeah, I, I feel like in the next few years as well, maybe some of the next gens can look to Dolph Otro and think, you know, he he was able to crack the big three str- stranglehold a little bit. Um, maybe I can as well because yeah. kind of still waiting on that. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's like you know, and it's also just a reminder to never take things for granted in the sport. Yeah, because I think careers are just they're so short and it's so easy to just look ahead and just predict like so-and-so is going to win multiple majors mm-hmm. after seeing a few good performances and just, you know, really but believing into it. And it's just, it's just one of those sports where it's just the physical toll week in and week out. You just never know when it might be too much. Yeah. And, you know, for Del Potro, like when he fell down and he hurt his kneecap in Shanghai 2018 against Borna Chorich, it seemed so innocuous at the time. It just seemed like, you know, just sort of a minor thing. He got back up, he got his knee taped and you're thinking, okay, he's probably going to be out maybe for the rest of the year, but he'll come back and he'll have his moments again. And then, you know, then he, then he actually comes back and he plays well. And then he, it's like every single time he, he showed that he was resilient and perseverant enough, something else just got in his way and knocked him out. And it's not one of those injuries where, you know, it's just accumulation or it's just years and toll on the like physical toll taking its, um like effect it's more like just bad luck like just falling and hurting yourself that way like it just it's so harmless it could just happen to anyone like any tennis match that we're watching like someone could just fall and just receive a medical timeout and that could be the end like it's yeah it's it it was really scary to just think about yesterday in my mind like wow like just i mean (laughs) and this is minor but like born a shortage man like he has a master's 1000 final on his resume now and it's yeah, like, I mean, and know. he he looked so good as well. I mean, one of the better backhands I've ever seen. Um, and yeah, I mean, Del Potro is one of the reasons why. Like when I'm watching a final, I, I hope for a good match. But more than that, I think, please, like neither neither player get injured. Like I really want this to be decided by the tennis. Um, and another guy we're kind of seeing this with now, not to the same extent yet, is Dominic Team. Like he. Mm. He's doing so well, playing such incredible tennis, mixing it up with the big three. And then right as you start to think it's going to last a while, something hits out of nowhere. And I mean, he hasn't been back like since he, and he was, he was incredible. Like all of 2020 going into 2021, he was doing some remarkable things. I think at after the world's tour finals in 2020, even though he didn't win, a lot of people were saying he was the best player in the world. And then it really just comes to a stop without much warning. And so, yeah, like you were saying, I think Del Potro is a great example of of like a reminder to like cherish these moments. You don't know how many you're going to get. So um, squeeze every last drop out of them. Yeah. And I think that's what he did with what uh, he absolutely left everything and more on the court Yeah, with, you know, what, what he was dealt with, the hand he was dealt with. And, you know, I definitely just hope for his sake that he has a, that he can sleep well at night he has a good health like happy prosperous life ahead because he's such a great guy and for sure like there's so many spots open in tennis for commentary for yeah um, coaching really any role he would be such a good fit yeah like, writers at popcorn tennis perhaps oh yes <laughs> the, <laughs> no, biggest, but... the, the most honorable of them all right uh, <laughs> yeah but i yeah i really hope he sticks around tennis and in, in whatever role i think um the, the sport would definitely be, be better for it. Um, right. So to, to round things out, what is your favorite Del Potro forehand? Uh, individual shot that he's hit. Oh. 
Hmm. There's so many. Yeah. It's like, it's just so hard to narrow it down because, hmm. I'm thinking it has to be one, it has to be a forehand that was significant in terms of, you know, one of his biggest achievements. Like it has to be, it has to come from one of his biggest accomplishments because I'm sure he's hit like some really good ones that you'll see on tennis TV, but they're not as um, defining for his legacy, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Do you have one? Yeah, Maybe you can, you um, can go first. I was thinking, so do you remember the one when Federer is serving for the second set of the US Open final? Um, yeah. 30 all. And then oh, there's like the Hawkeye God. controversy. That was going to be mine. So, so on, on the point was... after that, um, Federer yeah. comes in again and again approaches to the forehand. Um, and again, hits a decent approach. And Del Potro hits the exact same shot, except this time it's obviously in, and he breaks. And he does a, a screaming fist pump and the crowd gets really into it. And that was the turning point. So that's mine, not the 30 all one, but the break point. Break point. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. Hmm. For me, it might be one of the ones he hit against Djokovic when he was two sets to one down. Hmm. And he just, he hit this one forehand. I think it was the fastest forehand I've ever seen. Uh-huh. I, I, like, I think it was 117 miles per hour. It was just like- a joke. Is this because, like five, six, thirty love or something? Yeah, it was before yeah. the tie break. Yeah. In the fourth set. And I, I think the forehand itself was faster than than uh, Djokovic's serve. I think. Like it was faster than his first serve, which is mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, I, I might be misremembering, but I want to say that one was 120 miles an hour. Um there's oh, definitely yeah, a shot of was... the the clock thingy that measures um the speed and I, mm-hmm. I feel like it was 120. Like I just have pictures I just also have images of in that tie break where you know Djokovic like puts up a lob and yeah Del Potro is just like shooing at it yeah. with his hands and just, <laughs> just wishing that it goes long so he can extend the match. Yeah. Um just, yeah, yeah I mean yeah. I, I remember Djokovic trying to run for that forehand and his body kind of buckles as it like <laughs> zips past him. It's almost like he's bowing um at, at the sheer pace of this forehand. Um, I think I think Del Potro smiled at that one as well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I think we're really gonna miss him, even though hasn't been active on tour very recently. And um just hope he can find peace, whatever he does next. Yeah, I just hope he's he's happy first and foremost. And you know, definitely his legacy will live on. And there's so many really good moments that you know YouTube just captured all of them and yeah that, that's so great because not even for the big three do we have like every single moment of their early career but for del potro because we lived through it and we're in the youtube era we can go back and we can revisit these awesome moments and yeah more re- than once probably some of these even relive some of these matches um like during an off season or during when there's more downtime it would be mm-hmm. so much fun yeah yeah we, we could definitely do a, a relived of one of his his epic Wimbledon ones, I think, would be fine. I think um I think Open Era might be doing the 2009 US Open, which I'm really excited for. Um, those guys will crush that. But yeah, he's he's given us a lot of material to to dwell on. Um, and yeah, I, and I'm really glad to see that the tennis world is giving him a really nice send off. Yeah, for sure. And it's yeah, it's it's really 
inspiring because it's inspiring for a lot of the upcoming generations. I think to see someone who maxed out and got so much out of their skill set and was able to come back strong every single time and just made no more excuses. I think he said afterwards that, you know, in tears, like I'm just not as strong as some people might think or something to that regard. And to me, I'm just like, you're more strong than exactly, you know, every single one of us combined. Like it's just the resilience is just astounding. Right. Yeah. It's, it just goes beyond words. Yeah. You know how he was able to do it. And we we talk about the eight surgeries, but there were so many other nickels and injuries in between that he just had to go through. And when you have a surgery like that, to the amount of just the amount of um, strain it puts on you mentally and the pressure that you have to then rechange your game, retool it, believe that it's going to work. Just the belief, like just how how was he able to believe, you know, every single time? Mm -hmm. Like it's, you know, it's, it's one thing for the big three who have shown that they can do it through longevity and they can adapt and they're great champions, but they all had sustained periods where they were able to, where they were not robbed significantly of time. And yeah. El Porto just was robbed of that opportunity because he'd never really quite had that fearless, reckless, that not reckless, but fearless abandon on the backhand wing, mm-hmm. which I think really made him so potent and dangerous because there was nowhere to go. Yeah. And, you know, we, we didn't get to see what that product would have looked like in 2010 and beyond. And so we, we, we might never know where he, where we really actually saw his true peak. Yeah. So I think that's the most devastating part about it is mm-hmm. we're just robbed of that opportunity. I, I agree, but it's, it's quite something to imagine. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, it's yeah. it's one of like the surest things that I can definitely you can definitely say he would have achieved you know gone on and achieved quite a bit more and it would have been up there and they would have been sharing the big titles mm-hmm. you know between five players six players max if you want to include yeah. you know Stan I, I, I could definitely see him kind of bumping Stan out of the equation uh, if he were more healthy um but yeah it it could have been a big six for a little bit um (laughs) which is which is wild to think about um yeah yeah, i mean i I think that's all i have is there anything else you want to ask i think i I think we've pretty much covered it like it's like as good as we can as good of a job we could do in in one hour yeah it's the rest is just up to us to imagine (laughs) yeah Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 